0: Thanks for tuning in to Episode 6 of Innovation Activists, Designing Healthcare's Future. I'm Reed Omri, and today we're broadcasting out of Nashville, Tennessee with Dr. Bill DeFries. He is an international author, lecturer, and retired cardiothoracic surgeon who made medical history at age 39 when he performed the first artificial heart transplantation on a human patient in 1982. Wow. You are a rock star in <laughs> medicine. Thanks so much for joining us, Bill. Can you tell us a little bit about the road that led you to develop the Jarvik 7? Well, actually, I, I didn't develop
1: the Jarvik 7. Jarvik 7, but I got involved in that. He was... a. Uh, I got involved in medical school and Dr. Kolf who was running the artificial heart program at that time kind of recruited me to come by and work with him and I was excited about it because it was just an incredible opportunity to do something that was really cool. And I got I just got totally enamored by the whole thing and uh, came as a first year medical student and it governed my life from then on, you know. It was it was a wonderful wonderful opportunity for me
0: did, did it find you as much as you found it kind
1: of both ways we captured each other i mean i was uh walking out of a gross anatomy class and wa- washing my hands off and i noticed i didn't have any money for lunch so i decided well i'm going to walk around in the hall and see something do something i didn't want to mooch off my friends in the cafeteria mm-hmm. i'm walking down the hall at the university and i hear this uh, all these people clapping out of this auditorium and laughing So I said, well, this this is better than standing around the hall. So I walked in, there was Dr. Kolf was, they were recruiting Dr. Kolf to come to the University of Utah. He started telling the story about uh, the development of the artificial kidney and the artificial hearts. And he talked about his, his, all the hospitals he'd been in, what he was doing. And it was just incredible. It just took, it just picked me up and carried me away. And uh, that was the, the shortest hour I'd ever been in in my life. And when he got through, I mean, I went down to him and I said, Dr. Kolf, I'm Bill DeVries, and I'd like to work with you if you have time. I'm a first-year medical student. And he said, oh, uh, you're not Bill DeVries. You're Willem DeVries. He said, that's a good Dutch name. You're you're hired. (laughs) So I got hired because I had a Dutch name. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I knew I was Dutch, but that was I had a job now all of a sudden, and uh, he he kind of mentored me for the rest of my life, off and on. You know, he was a tremendous uh, person to work with, and uh, he was he came to the University of Utah and was trying to get people like me and other people around to help him with his artificial kidneys, artificial hearts, and it was just a wonderful experience. It was a great
0: ride. You know, you started early in medical school and then you had to do you know all of the yeah. training. How, how did you keep that passion going through all the, 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 the various activities in medical training?
1: In medical school it was easy because uh, I was busy doing all the things you have to do to get, get your degree in medicine, but also I was doing things for him and the artificial heart. And he was, every every week, there'd be a new person. He'd recruit someone else to come in, an engineer, or he'd bring a, a blood person or a pump person. And so uh, I just kind of hung in with that and did the best I could in school, worked part-time with him. And uh, at the end, uh, I was ended up starting by rolling artificial, heart, artificial kidneys for dialysis. And at the end, I got involved as a calf sitter, which meant I had to watch the calves after we'd put the artificial hearts, and I would help the surgery. So I was just kind of a menial labor type person during that time, and uh, I, I got really taken by it. I thought it was really kind of neat. And so, time comes for me to graduate from the University of Utah. He puts me in charge of his friend, Dr. Reesman, who's head of the head of the of the division. And I said, Dr. reesman uh, I need to get my residency and get, become a real doctor. And he said, well, uh, you're not going here. You're going to Duke. And I said, Duke in North Carolina? And he said, yes. He said, he said we've decided that you will go there and you'll work with Dr. Sabiston. And when you're through there, you'll come back here and you'll start implanting artificial hearts. <laughs> and I said, wow, that, that sounds, sounds cool to me. It was all right with me to do that. And that's how I got started. So I worked with Dr. Kulff for f- four years of my medical school class. And then when it was over, graduated, got my family in a U-Haul and drove to Duke. And that's where I got started. Now, that was an eight-year program, which was really tough. But, and I honestly thought when I got there that when I came back, the artificial heart would be done, treated, everything was going fine. It would be a common use so I was a little bit hesitant about leaving it, but he told me, he said, this is what you're going to do. And I said, yes, sir, I will and did it.
0: So you were preordained, if you will.
1: I had no, I had no choice, no matter, but I didn't want a choice. I was sold. I mean after working with him and all the people i mean he surrounded himself with some of the greatest people you know and they all had they're all different but they were all interested in helping people and they all had came a, se- a separate niche one was an engineer one was a system system and another one did that did, did artificial hearts and and he had some something planned for me and so when i came out uh, nine years later I thought, well, this is going to be a common thing. Everybody's going to have one. People walk around the artificial heart, and it just kind of didn't happen that way. So when I uh, got through at Duke, I went to see Dr. Savison, who was my chief, and I said, uh, uh, Dr. Sabaston, what do you have plans for me? And he said, what do you mean plans? You're going back to Utah. <laughs> you're, going to, you're going to put in the artificial heart. So I said, okay, and get, got up all my kids. At that time, I had two more, so I had four kids. We got in a couple of U-Hauls and drove down to Salt Lake City, and I started working at the university in, the, in surgery.
0: How did it feel with everyone telling you that you were going to do it? It's up to you. You are going to do it. We all agree you are the one it that's wasn't, going to place it. Wasn't,
1: I wasn't coerced. I, that, I was fully involved in this. No, I thought that I thought it was a great opportunity. I really thought that any day I was going to pick up the newspaper and find out that an artificial heart developed at the University of Utah is going to be implanted. And I, and I felt like that would be, I'd be sad about that. Dr. Reemson, when he got this arrangement for me to go there, he said, don't do well, you'll be all right. We'll take care of you. Just trust us. And so that's what I did when I got back to the university of Utah, there was a space waiting, uh, we didn't have a lot of volumes of hearts, but we got involved in the VA built that up. And then I started working with the artificial heart program and we started writing the protocols for, for human use. And uh, we spent uh, two years getting all of that stuff ready, The consent forms, the, all of the team put together, and it slowly got closer and closer and closer and more and more exciting. and that was what it was. So I had a real job now, and then I had a, my fantasy job, which was the artificial heart. And it was it was a terrific time.
0: What was it like to go through that? Two-year process for trying to get approval to actually and, uh, implant the first heart. It was frustrating because
1: it, I, we wanted to we wanted to go smooth and fast, but it wasn't going to go that way. You had to deal with the FDA. You have to deal with the NIH who had concerns with it. You had to assume you get your get your team around you. You had to train nurses. You had to train doctors. You had to put right all the protocols. I mean, the protocols now from uh, were not just. Protocol to writing him up, you had to get approval through the FDA, and, and it was a big deal. I mean, writing consent forms, for example, we had to have the, the, the human resources, the, the bureau, for, to make sure that we were doing the right thing by the patient, and sit down. And I ended up writing an 11-page consent form, which said that uh, he had to sign it, the patient had to sign it, and then the next day, 24 hours after, he, he had to send somebody in to try to talk him out of it. And then, if he agreed, went through that one. He signed it again, and then we did it. So we were—it was—we didn't want any second thoughts or anything like that about it. And we went through it in great detail. And it—it it, was—I mean, I read the consent form multiple times since I wrote it, but it was a little scary to me, you know, to think someone would do it. But we found patients that were really heart hurting. In their heart, they couldn't breathe. They didn't. They, plus, most of them really wanted to help. They wanted to do something. They were fit, they were dealt a bad, you know, hand of cards, and they wanted to make something out of their life. and And so it was a it was it was it was, it was inspiring to me to see these people after you explain to them what you're going to have to do. And it was amazing to me. Uh, everyone had a different reason. I mean, some wanted to help others. And others wanted to live longer, and they all came to me with different reasons about it. And we talked about it, and talked to the family, and some made sure they had had uh, resources, to, to family resources, to support them, and so forth, and so on. And we got ready to do it. And uh, and one of the patients uh, was a deer hunter from New York, and he came in with a massive heart attack while he was hunting, climbing the mountains and he was dying before our very eyes and he he wanted to do this he wanted to be part of the artificial heart program and we went through and he was the right size and all this stuff and what got right down to it though, uh, we had to turn him down because he had no support mechanism. That was one of the things that we said. We had to have a family of support, you know, and someone to take care of you and be responsive. And as I got into his life history, he'd just recently been divorced and all of his kids hated him. Hmm. And so we had we said, I'm sorry we can't take you this and we turned off the bloom pump and he died. And that was that wow. was that was sad, but you know, that was what we, we had been talking about for almost two years, But what would type of person. And if he didn't have someone to really support him during this whole time, he wasn't going to be a good candidate. And that, that hurt me. But I mean, you know, I understood that because I had helped write that and make that. So we went through a lot of ups and downs and finally we on Thanksgiving Day, we um, Barney Clark, the first heart patient, came and called and said that he wanted He had already been to the lab, and we'd taken him out to show him the calves and how long they lived, what they looked like. And, and he and his wife had an opportunity, and he was a mm-hmm. retired dentist. And mm-hmm. so he had a great family support, and uh, they called me. They, we, we had actually taken him down, and they showed him how we implanted the artificial heart on a patient. And then on Thanksgiving Day, he called up and his son, who was a dentist, called and said, you know, he's decided that he wanted to have this done. And I said, well, um, what what happened? And he said, well, he just, we tried to, we got him up from bed. He came down the stairs. He gave the, the blessing on the food. And he said, I, I decided I want to go ahead and do this. And his wife said, well, why did why have you decide this? And he said, I... He said, I don't know how good I'll be because I'm sicker than most people and I'm gonna die. And I just as soon make my life worthwhile. So that was that was touching. And it put a lot of pressure on us because, you know, when you're responsible for someone who's laying his entire life in your hands, it's hard. It's hard on everybody, the nurses, the doctors, everybody was affected by that. But he felt very strong about it and so we felt that he was he was okay to do that, but it, it laid a, a real responsibility on on our, all of us on the team to make sure that we were right and doing the right thing and making sure he didn't have pain, he didn't suffer and that kind of stuff. So it was uh, it was emotional from the very beginning for all people. We, I can remember coming in the night after he would operate on him, and there was a, a lady whose job was to mop the floor, and she was standing at the foot of his bed crying. Wow. Because she said how much this meant to him to, and his family and helping people and things like that. So we had all kinds of that going on. And, you know, that was very touching to all of us. It makes you head, dive into something like that. And we just made sure that I's were dotted and T's were crossed, you know. And, and he lived about a, he lived about 110 days with heart. And, and, uh, and then he died. But it was he was he he was uh, the first, and he was a real pioneer.
0: How did you prepare mentally and physically for this?
1: Well, physically it was, it was fairly easy. I mean, you just you just do a lot of them. I was doing uh, three or four um, uh, uh, surgeries on animals, plus I was doing my regular day of of all operating on, on uh, humans like I would usually do. So we were ready and we were very excited. We were pretty high on, on getting this done. We'd waited a long time for this. And so when it came time to do this, we, we were all ready. And it was a great relief. He uh, came in um, and uh, we had been to the hospital and he signed the consent form. then he had to wait 24 hours and re-sign it. And during that period of time was a difficult time because he was having more and more pain and his blood pressure was getting lower and we were afraid that he might not make it to the time. And that was really the hardest time. But then we had him sign it, then we had him sign it again at that time and we decided to go. We started operation like 10 o'clock at night um, in early part of December and it was snowing uh, outside. And so when I went in the operating room, I looked and it was about midnight and it was snowing. So about uh, 4.30, we'd had the heart implanted and it was beating well and I asked one of the scrub nurses, I said, uh, she went out to get something to eat. And I said, what's it like outside, meaning is it snowing? And she said, Doc, you won't believe it. There's over 300 press people down in the cafeteria. They've eaten all the food and drank all the coffee. (laughs) And she said, they're they're going out for more. They're going to go they get a vendor to bring more stuff in. And then I knew that time what it was going to be like, you know, because we, we were in Salt Lake City, which was miles from anywhere else. You know what I mean? And people had fla- flown in that night in a snowstorm to get this. And those people never left. We had like 400 people in the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. I mean, but everybody was rooting for him and wanted him to do well. And, and uh it was it was uh, it was uh it was a loving time for everybody we were glad to see but you know time came that he he, he left and we all accepted that because everybody had done what they had what they felt the best thing to do and he did too and so he was happy and his family were happy and they, he made a contribution that we'll always be grateful to
0: i remember i was a teenager growing up in the washington dc yeah. area and I would eagerly come home from soccer practice and yeah. turn on the nightly news. Right, and every single night, it, it was uh, it was you and uh, Chase Peterson was a
1: speech. <laughs> you know the funny thing. You know what population affected more than anybody else was young kids, and literally we were getting five to six thousand letters a day from. Kindergartens in, 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 in Missouri, you know, and they'd come and they would bring sacks, and we would, they'd bring sacks in, and his wife would go through all of these thousands, thousands of cards, get well cards, and drawings and things. And uh, the young people, uh, those young people, it just really took over. And that went on all the time. He was almost all of his life. And I still run into people that come up to me and say, I I wrote letters to Barney Clark when I was in the third grade, you know, and stuff like that, wishing him good health and all of this stuff. And So it it captured a lot of people, but it was funny that the young kids are the ones that really got most, and I still get letters from some of those kids. And I run into them in the hospital. Some of them are doctors and nurses, and they'll say, yeah, I sent letters to Barney Clark, you know, and that kind of stuff. So it was an incredible event. I mean, uh, it was incredible.
0: I would imagine that there was nothing in your surgery training that would have prepared you for the the media onslaught.
1: No, I had no idea. I really had no idea. Fortunately, the best thing I did was I got the president of the university to be the spokesperson and he was just came from Harvard and he was a very educational person, and he was an endocrinologist and all this stuff and I said Chase Peterson, I said, look, you want to handle this, handle it, you know, and I'll be you you in any way I possibly can. But it was something that I was not prepared at all for. But uh, basically, it was very positive And it was, some, it was a really good story. It was a man that had no no life. And he gave his life to help other people. So how can you complain about that? You know, it, it was a great story.
0: Well, Do- Dr. Defries, you are an absolute inspiration uh, for so many people and you know what you did absolutely transformed the practice of medicine wow. you you showed what people didn't think could ever happen
1: well it was yeah we 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 kind of knew what happened if you deal with that stuff you don't do that unless you know what what will happen and we had a lot of people who signed a lot of research, Dr. Kolf, and a lot of things, a lot of people in the Artificial Heart Program, a lot of the nurses, they never doubted us. They took care of it. Uh, you know, you'd see uh, people that uh, swept the floor and everything. They were all doing their part. And it was a great and an inspirational thing to ha- be able to have that trust and uh, be able to go in to see someone like that, that you've given him life. Now, I've a- I asked Barney Clark many times why he did it why I said why did you why did you do this and the answer kept always coming back he said I you know I've got something really bad and I'm going to die from this but I want to make 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 this mean something and boy that as a physician you really then you know perk up at that they're not doing it for him he was doing it for other people and it was it was an honor to see, see patients like that you know so it was well worth it when you get that type of rapport with a patient. and i I just uh, was
0: privileged. So is there any advice that you'd like to to leave our audience with about chasing your 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 dreams you know, doing something that nobody you, has done? You don't
1: ever, yeah, you, know, you don't ever know. And, and a lot of times people, everyday people get called in to act to do things you know that are unusual or to help other people, and, and you know, they, they have an opportunity to do this. But that was something, you know, it was grateful to me because we spent so much time putting it all together and seeing it work. And after after he died, we worked as hard as we can to get another patient, and we end up doing four patients with with the artificial heart. Uh, Bill Schrader lived to be almost two years, over two years with the artificial heart. And it, all of these Patience had something else, some reason. Uh, Barney wanted to help other people. Bill Schrader wanted to see his son's wedding, huh. and so he saw his son's wedding after about a year with it. And he stood up, and he was in Jasper, Indiana, and all his family came in. It was a it was a grand event, you know. But he wanted to see his wedding, and other people just want to help other people and the, all of the patients that had came to you and they all teach you something about life and about you know your 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 job and and how you have to do it and you have to do it the best you can but they all have different reasons and uh, the nurses, for example, who wait, just waited on these people—I mean, they just did an incredible work job and in, in making sure that we could get our rest too, and everybody could rest. So it was—it uh, was a great opportunity, and we were just privileged to, to be involved in that.
0: Well, thank you so much. What incredible wisdom there our, our yeah. patients can teach us about life, and it's true. For the listeners of this podcast, please share your thoughts with me on Twitter, at Reed Omery. Very interested in having a, a discussion about this. And stay tuned for our next episode of Innovation Activists next month. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Dr. Defries. It's you. been an honor. Thank you. It's was my honor. Thank you.